1: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
0: Who really murdered Patricia Kern?
1: I found Patricia seemed to be to be the only normal person in that family. I got the impression that she was a very sensible, level-headed girl.
0: Patricia's mutilated body was discovered just forty yards from her home at two o'clock in the morning on the thirteenth of November, nineteen fifty-two. She was a judge's daughter, savagely stabbed to death. Investigating the murder here in White Abbey of Patricia Curran. She came from an important family. Her father had been a Unionist MP, Attorney General in the Northern Ireland government, and was now a High Court judge. The pressure was on to find her killer. An innocent but compromised man, Ian Hay Gordon, was eventually blackmailed into signing a confession and sent to a psychiatric hospital.
1: He said, the shock of all this will kill your mother, and he really am um, praising my fears of this to the extent. And you kept on and on. And I, I, I said, why don't you believe me? Why, don't, why won't you leave me alone? I've told you I've nothing to do with it.
0: Only to be quietly released and packed off home to Scotland.
1: Every night when I went to bed, I said, tomorrow I'll be free. And every morning I woke up, I said today I will be free because I was utterly determined to get out and clear my name.
0: In this episode of The Bell Tale, journalist Stephen Gordon tells us about meeting Patricia's brother Desmond, who spent his life as a Catholic priest in South Africa. A life, some think, was an act of redemption.
1: I had been studying the Catholic faith for seven years and uh, I know that I felt that I had uh, achieved something, that I had arrived somewhere...
0: And we ask the biggest question of all. If Ian Hay Gordon didn't kill Patricia, then who did? One of the other people we've mentioned already in this in this story is another person you've met, Patricia Kern's brother, Desmond. Who eventually converted to Catholicism, which was—it's quite strange here in Northern Ireland—and uh, ended up doing missionary work in South Africa. You've actually interviewed.
1: I asked to meet him in Cape Town along with John Linklater, investigative journalist from Glasgow, and uh, Father Kern uh, agreed. And uh, in April 2001, John and I travelled to Cape Town.
0: One of the lines that you've written off the back of that interview struck, st- stood out to me. Well, there are a couple of lines that stood out to me. And one of them, if Father Desmond knew Patricia's killer, he hid it well.
1: Yes, he, he didn't get much away. He was, he was a lovely man. And um, he, was, he was living in, um, in, uh, in Kalisha, I think it was called, the, the township, sprawling township outside Cape Town. Incredible poverty. He lived in, yeah, um, I think it was some sort of uh, fiberglass cabinet. I think at one stage he lived in a, a, a steel container. Des lives in conditions that I shouldn't like, to, I wouldn't like to live in. Uh, it's a, a prefabricated house in a very tiny area right in the middle of a big squatter camp in which there's a great deal of violence. Uh, he has no electricity, he has a chemical toilet which he has to own to himself. And um, it really is very cramped and um, it's amazing how he copes.
0: And he, in fact, had qualified as a barrister. He'd been to Cambridge
1: University. He studied classics at Cambridge and then came back to Queen's University to study law. He was leading the Law Society at Queen's, apparently, and he then became a barrister. And I suppose...
0: Then his conversion to Catholicism, his conversion—he to, took up missionary work, and as you say, mm-hmm. he didn't live exact. And he lived with his parishioners. Oh yes. And uh, you also have written to some who were suspicious of the currents. Uh, Father Desmond's life of poverty smacked of an act of atonement.
1: Yes, I think a lot of people thought that. I don't know about that now. I mean Father, Cur- a lot of people felt extraordinary, but he converted from Presbyterianism to Catholicism. Um, his father, you know, was staunch Unionist, um, staunch Presbyterian, and a member of the Orange Order. So for his son to become a Catholic, this county arrangement Orangeman to become a Catholic, seemed very unusual. And to become a priest and to be ordained in Rome, you know, seemed to many people just absolutely extraordinary. And I suppose the thing is, Desmond Kern wasn't your typical county Presbyterian. He had gone to Cambridge, he'd studied classics. He was a very intelligent man, uh, with a very keen interest in religion. Um, he had been, a, been involved in this movement, Moral Rearmament, an international movement about morality. And although he was came back to Belfast to pursue a career in law, I think his first love was religion. He, he I, So his his conversion to Catholicism, some people thought was he was guilt-ridden or something, and they became a... I don't know, I think he was someone who um, who may have gone down that path anyway, um, regardless of what happened to his sister.
0: But having previously said that he did believe, I mean he originally believed that Gordon was guilty uh, and mm-hmm. he originally he did, said yeah. that he believed that there was an element of diabolical possession to the murder, mm-hmm. which is a strange turn of phrase, but as you say he was a religious man, but then he, he did eventually change his mind after reading the 2000 uh, Belfast verdict, but he was always resolute that his family had not been involved in the killing or any um, sort mm-hmm. of cover-up. Now, there has been a book relatively recently published yes. about this by author Kieran Fagan, yes, and, he, book. Yep. And, and, and he believes uh, that the people who carried out this murder were very important people, and that's why they were uh, protected. He believes that Patricia Curran was killed in the escalation of a very minor row it was a tragedy and he didn't believe that anyone intended to kill her. Uh, well, she was stabbed 37 times. So, mm. I mean, what what is your view, having extensive knowledge of this case, of that conclusion?
1: The, the police didn't crack the case. They got someone who, in, in modern, certainly in today, they, they couldn't have got a conviction. Now, I think there are, there are key, key elements to the case uh, which the, the police didn't investigate properly. And because they didn't investigate properly, it's left people coming to the conclusion that um, if Gordon didn't did, who did, and why didn't the police investigate why didn't they follow the evidence and that evidence is, is, is evidence concerning the current family
0: and Mr. fagan's conclusion he lays out a theory that it was in fact Patricia's mother yes lady. Doris Curran, who killed her. Now, that's a theory I, we don't have. Lady Curran has obviously passed away. No. We don't have any evidence of, of that. We can't, we can't convict Lady Curran in a podcast. Oh. But what can we say about the theory?
1: Well, it's not a new theory. I first heard it um, more than 20 years ago by uh, John Linklater, an investigative journalist who looked f- closely at the case, and who had access to thousands of documents, along with his solicitor Marco Harvey. So John put forward a theory. It was Doris Curran. Other people have done have, have, have made similar claims. It was a book written by an English legal expert, um, Colour of Justice, which put forward a similar theory. And Kieran's book, which I've just read, it's a very good book, I have to say. He puts forward that, that theory too. I don't think we'll ever really know. Curran denied completely. Desmond Curran denied completely. I don't think we will ever know what really happened. I think Curran probably took whatever secrets he had to the grave. What we can say is that the police followed up a lot of leads. Um, the case took him to uh, Capstick, the lead investigator, travelled to Manchester to interview a man who claimed... That he had killed Patricia Curran. It turned out to be a wild goose chase. He was a hoaxer, a attention seeking hoaxer. He travelled to Dublin um, to see if there was any link to a case in the Republic. There was, there was no connection. And the police searched sort of high and low to find the killer. What they didn't do was look a few hundred yards up the lane to Glen House. They failed to follow the evidence. They failed to investigate the possibility that Patricia Curran wasn't killed at the spot where she was found, or near the spot where she was found, but actually that she'd got home that night. she had walked from the bus and got to her house up the lane. Now, the police were aware that was a possibility. Um, documents uncovered by Gordon's legal team showed that the police considered the possibility that the Currans were covering up the murder. The documents revealed, um, and they were sort of publicised in 1995, that Albert Kennedy, the county inspector who was uh, leading the inquiry, made a report in November 1952 where he basically said that the possibility of the Kern family's involvement in the murder was too fantastic to believe. But there was discrepancies in the Kerns' evidence. When the Kerns raised the alarm... They had told police and also the Davisons that Patricia Curran had got on the 5 o'clock bus and that John Steele, her friend, an uh, accountancy student, had said he had put her on the bus. The only way the Currans could have really that was from John Steele or been told by Patricia herself. What the evidence the Steele family gave was that Judge Curran rang their home at 2 o'clock in the morning or shortly after 2 o'clock in the morning this would have been after Patricia's body was found. Now, you have to imagine that in 1952, phones were quite a rarity. We didn't all have mobile phones by our side, and people didn't have phones, by and large, by their bedside. So the phone would have been in the downstairs hall. And so the phone going anytime after midnight would have sounded alarm, bells. it would have been, you know, an unusual event, and people would have been concerned of why someone was funny that time of night. When the phone went, he went downstairs, it was Judge Curran, and he wanted to speak to his son John. John, he went downstairs and he spoke to Curran and told him, yes, he had put Patricia on the 5 o'clock bus. Desmond Curran, he, he knew John Steen, he had apparently told the Currans that um, or his father and mother, that Patricia would have been with John, with John Steele that day. But they wouldn't have known what bus he was, he had put them up her on, they would have no idea. John Steele and his mother Esther all said the call was after two in the morning from the judge. And they all discussed it. They were all worried about Patricia. John apparently didn't sleep the rest of the night. He was so concerned. But they were all adamant the phone call was made at two o'clock. So how did the Kerns know that Patricia had been put on the bus when they contacted the Davidson family at around 1.30 and contacted police around 1.45? The police, in the report by Albert Kennedy, considered that they knew... Because Patricia had come home and she must have told the family who what bus she got. Albert Kennedy and the county inspector realised that the Kearns' evidence didn't tally with the steals and that if this was so, it opened up this possibility that she got home and that the Kearns were telling nice. lies. When Richard Ferguson QC examined um, that evidence in 1995. He was a well-known barrister. He was astonished that the police had not followed that line of inquiry. The police decided, he said, it was decided to pursue every other line of inquiry before allowing our thoughts to concentrate on something. This is Albert Kennedy. It was decided to pursue every other line of inquiry before allowing our thoughts to concentrate on something which seemed too fantastic to believe, namely that the Kearns were in fact covering up murder and telling a tissue of lies. Kennedy goes on to say so, the currents were not questioned because he would cause considerable distress, language, anguish. add to the considerable distress, language they already suffered. Kennedy said he believed that the um, Steele family made a genuine mistake. It seems extraordinary that the police didn't follow that up. They didn't investigate that discrepancy. Um, they didn't question the currents about it for fear of um, causing further distress. But the police considered that possibility. Now, I would take the other evidence. The other evidence was that Patricia there was, was so little, Patricia had been stabbed 37 times. There should have been a lot of blood at the scene of the murder, but there wasn't. There was only three drops of blood were found on leaves near where her body was found. She'd clearly been killed somewhere else. And the timing of the murder, the police fixated that the murder had happened about 5.45. Of course, she could have been killed later than that. Now if you come to the conclusion that Patricia Curran was not murdered where a body was found, then you have to say, well, where, where would she be murdered? And the most first obvious place would have been Curran's home, if she had reached home. And you have to then have to ask who was in the house. Uh, Desmond Curran was not at home. The brother, he, he didn't arrive home until around nine o'clock. He had been at the Bar Library in Belfast. Judge Curran had been out at the Ulster Reform Club. It was his habit on a Wednesday night to uh, play poker. He generally didn't come home until late. But he got a call at about 7 o'clock in the Reform Club and a taxi driver took him to the Reform Club to his house where he arrived sometime around quarter, 20 past 7. The call could only have come from Doris Curran. Doris Curran, she would have arrived home probably around 6 o'clock. She'd been playing bridge with her friends at Davison's. So if Patricia did get to the house, then that would leave Doris and Patricia together between, well, certainly after six o'clock, between six and around seven. So why why did she phone her husband at the reform club? Why did he come home so promptly? And it led people to suggest that what, what happened was that Doris, in a fit of rage, killed her daughter and that she summoned her husband home. The driver noted that when Judge Curran got to the house, he had difficulty getting in the door. The door seemed to be locked. So Desmond Curran arrives home after nine. He claims there was nothing toward. He went to bed and was woken about half one in the morning by his parents, who were concerned Patricia still hadn't arrived home. I think it's sort of by process of elimination and by process of putting the facts together that people like Kieran, like John Linkley and others, say the evidence points to Patricia getting home that night, telling her mother that she was with John Steele and that she got the five o'clock bus. And that basically fit a rage. I think another key factor here was that Judge Curran didn't allow the police to search the family home for some days. I've heard different reports. It was three days. Some say one book I read said it was a week. One book said that Patricia's bedroom had been redecorated. I think it would have been unthinkable for any other family if, if Judge Kern hadn't been a high court, you know, hadn't been a high court judge. If this had been an ordinary family, I think their house, their house was a potential crime scene, and it, it wasn't searched uh, for days afterwards, and statements weren't taken from Judge Curran or his wife for some days afterwards. Now, when we spoke to Desmond Curran about this, he was adamant there was no cover up, and adamant that. Um, yeah, he seemed to think Mr Steeles must have been mistaken. And that um he he the only way he knew that he'd be told that John Steele had told the family that um, he had put, put Patricia on the five o'clock bus. Well what he did agree and what he did say was that the police, um, by not investigating that land inquiry, by considering it too fantastic to consider it, um, had it would have been better if they had it for the current family, um, with hindsight. Um it would have been better if they got to the bottom of that discrepancy and you know put that one to bed but the fact that he didn't and the reasons they gave and the fact that that has led to this theory that it was doris curran that killed patricia i can't say she did i have no i don't know and i don't think we'll ever know but certainly what you can say is that the police followed all sorts of different lines of inquiry but he didn't pursue they didn't go where the evidence should have led them you know they went to manchester they went to dublin but he didn't go up to the big house at the top of the lane and question two people. And I just asked to find out, to get to the bottom of this discrepancy in their evidence. The police effectively tiptoed around the Curran family, but they trampled over a Gordon. I think the treatment of Gordon was, was a disgrace, but the t- failure to thoroughly investigate the Curran family properly, to follow the lines of investigation, left, has left this suspicion surrounding the family and led to the theory that the Cairns were involved in, first of all, a clean-up operation and a cover-up operation. Now, one of the, one of the things that Cairn raises in his, his new book, it's a very good new book on the case, is that Dorothy Turtle believed that there was another figure involved, that um, uh, the Reverend Sam Wiley. She, she wrote, I think, in 1969, he says, to the then Home Secretary, James Callaghan, later became Prime Minister in the 70s, she wrote to him when he was home secretary saying that Sam Wiley had been involved in the clean-up operation of the Curran's home in the hours after Patricia's murder. So this, this this theory that there was a clean-up operation and a cover-up is not new, and I don't think it's going to go away, unfortunately. But certainly Desmond Curran agreed it would have been better if the police had... Um, got to the bottom of the discrepancies and evidence between the Steele's and the currents And those discrepancies were, incidentally, they were noticed by Malcolm Davison, the current's own solicitor. He was concerned about it. He, he said, I think he said to police, that Judge Curran was very hazy about the times. And I think there's evidence that Davison actually rang Mr. Steele John's father and asked, was he sure? And Mr. Steele apparently wasn't... Happy about this at all, and con- contacted the police. Well, it wasn't, wasn't. He shouldn't be speaking to the current family solicitor, but the Steadles were pretty adamant. And as I say, it would have been been very strange to get a phone call from a judge about his missing daughter. That would not have been a normal circumstance. To get out of your bed, put your dressing gown on, go downstairs, and answer the call from a the judge. Then for your son to speak to the judge, and then for the family to gather and be concerned about the whereabouts of a 19-year-old student, that's not something you would you would forget. And that's, it's not surprising that they would have checked. John Steele said he checked his watch. Mrs. Steele said she looked at the clock in the bedroom. So um, the Steele's were pretty adamant that the call didn't come to, after two o'clock. And it does beg the question, how did the Kearns know that Patricia had been on the, specifically on the five o'clock bus?
0: I suppose the question is, Stephen, but for those who who favour the theory that Patricia uh, was murdered by her own mother, Doris, why would a mother possibly do
1: that? That's a difficulty I have, too. It's just hard, really, to imagine, isn't it, that a um, mother would have inflicted such violence on her daughter? Um, it's really hard to get your head around. Um, the injuries were so, so severe. One theory I've heard was that um, Doris wasn't responsible for all the stab wounds that she may have stabbed her and accidentally killed her, and then in the cover-up they've tried to make it look like you know the work of a maniac. That's just one theory that's out there, and I, just, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't endorse it. But I think I think there were there was difficulties between mother and daughter, and they weren't frankly <laughs> massive difficulties. That there were pretty commonplace uh, even today as we maybe spoken about earlier um, Mrs. Curran did not the rest of the family were okay but Mrs. Curran was, didn't approve of her having a job with um, a local building firm driving a van Mrs. Curran in, in her interview with police did confirm that there was friction between them um, she said I took a very dim view of her driving she objected Patricia's choice of friends claiming she didn't have enough young contacts I think it was Certainly said at the time that Patricia had been dating an older man, a chief engineer at a construction firm. Um, She liked to stay at late socialising apparently, and Doris complained she seemed bored with life and she wouldn't do anything about the house. Her mother complaining about teenage daughter not doing anything about the house or being bored with life or her choice of friends. None of it really seems to be very unusual. The theory goes that, you know, Mrs. Curran was maybe a fragile personality and she just snapped. And in a moment of rage with her daughter, attacked her. Perhaps struck her with a blunt object. Stabbed her. I find it very hard to find it very hard to believe myself that so little would lead to such a bloody end. But Doris Coron then then but, disappeared from view. Uh, I think don't think she disappeared completely according to Cairns' book. She still attends some social events. She became Lady Curran in 1964 when, when uh, Lancelot Curran was knighted. Um, she died in 1975. But yes, she 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 wasn't a high-profile figure at all. And I, I've, I must admit I've read very little about her. Um, and there isn't really a lot. Even in Karen's new book, there isn't much. But it, it is hard to imagine it's such you know, such a minor friction between mother and daughter would lead to that. And I think people will have difficulty getting their heads around it. But on the other hand, as I say, the police's failure to investigate the big house means that that suspicion and those stories will, will go on. And they're, they're not, I think, written um, by crackpots. They're written by people who have looked very thoroughly at the case. But they, they've they looked at great detail and had access to a lot of documents and a lot of files and that is the conclusion they've come to by our sort of process of looking at um, looking at the evidence
0: Stephen, thank you for sharing your forensic knowledge of this case it obviously comes from a great interest in the case and as you say, I don't think we'll ever know with any certainty of course we can't, who murdered um, Patricia Curran, but I think we can look back and say well, that's how not to investigate a murder and that's those are the consequences, I suppose, of societal differences at, at, that, at that time. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, sound designed by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from the Belfast Telegraph and the BBC. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can find many more like it on belfasttelegraph.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts.